Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoyed this message by Pastor David Eldridge. All right, we're going to start a new book today, Mark. So Mark is a gospel. Uh, the, the word gospel, when it's used of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it refers to a type of literature, a genre of literature. It's not a biography, and that can trip us up. So biographies are historical accounts of the, of the life of a person that are theoretically objective. We know there's no such thing as true objectivity, but that's what a biography says it is. A gospel's different. It's a historical account of the life of Jesus that's intended to portray him as the Messiah that should be followed. So there's a persuasive element to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They want to say, Jesus is the Messiah, and you should follow him. So that's what a Gospel is. And again, there's four of them in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark is the, the earliest Gospel. This is the traditional viewpoint. The earliest Gospel, the shortest Gospel, almost all of Mark is in Matthew. 92% of Mark is in Matthew. So many people think Matthew and Luke used Mark to write their stories. Mark primarily drew from Peter. That's, the, again, the traditional account. You can see some scriptures there if you want to do some research on Mark's connection to Peter. Uh, who is Mark? Not one of the 12 disciples. A guy named Mark or John Mark. He's mentioned a couple of times in the Bible. He was a cousin of Barnabas. He went on a mission trip with Paul and Barnabas and deserted them. So not great. Later, Barnabas wanted to take Mark on another trip. Paul didn't want to, and the disagreement was so strong that they split. Barnabas took Mark, and Paul took Silas. But whatever the issue was between Paul and Mark, they reconciled. By the end of his life, Paul's in prison, and he actually says to Timothy, send Mark to me. He's a help to me. So whatever, was, whatever tension they had got worked out. Again, he was not an eyewitness. He drew primarily from Peter's account. His book was written sometime 63, 64, 65 A.D. to Christians in Rome, which would have made them primarily Gentile. So that's the background on Mark. There's a QR code there behind me. If you want to follow that link through, uh, there's a group called the Bible Project. Many of you are familiar with them. They do great overviews, and so that's a link to the Bible Project's overview of Mark. It's a 10-minute video, and it'll help orient you uh, to the book as a whole as we'll be walking through it over the next uh, few months, probably, I don't know how long, six months or so. It'll probably take us to get through Mark. So today we're going to look at the first 13 verses in three sections. Verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. So that's the purpose statement, the topic sentence for the rest of the book. This is the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. So that, this can be just a little bit confusing. So that word good news, that is the word gospel. And when you see that word in the Bible, it's not referring to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're not talking about those four books. It's talking about the message that Jesus is the Messiah and that he's come to establish the kingdom of God. That's the good news. So when we say the good news or the gospel, the message that Jesus is the Messiah and he's come to establish the kingdom of God, the Messiah that's the same word as Christ. Messiah is Hebrew. Christ is Greek. They mean, that means an anointed one, one anointed for a certain job. The Messiah was the one the Jews were looking forward to who would make all things right for them and establish the kingdom of God. That's who they were looking for. They were looking for God to send them the Messiah, this person who he would anoint to make everything right for them 
and to establish his kingdom. The, the phrase son of God, when applied to Jesus, is speaking about his divinity. The Jews were expecting a Messiah, but they were expecting just a man, a really special man, but just a human. And Mark is saying there's more to Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's also divine. There's a unique relationship between Jesus and the Father. So as we read through the next 16 chapters of Mark, you can keep that in the back of your mind. The thing that Mark is trying to persuade us of, Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and we should follow him. Next section. As it's written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by John in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John the Baptist, how does he fit into Jesus as the Messiah the Son of God. So in the Old Testament, there's several verses that indicate, several prophecies that indicate before the Messiah came on the scene, there would be a, a, a messenger, a, a forerunner who would prepare the way. And Mark is saying John the Baptist is that guy. And he says that in a couple of ways, through two explicit scriptures and then one that's a bit more subtle. So explicitly, he quotes from Malachi 3.1, a messenger and in the wilderness, a voice, and then from Isaiah 40, verse 3, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. You see the scriptures there behind me. And then in the beginning of chapter 4, we see these two words, and so. So what John the Baptist is doing is a, is a deliberate fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies. John ate locusts and wild honey. Why do we care? That's what you ate if you lived in the wilderness. In the wilderness, you couldn't really grow food. So if you were living off the land in the wilderness, locusts and wild honey, those were things that you could eat that were still clean. So as you could maintain, as a Jew, you were allowed to eat locusts and wild honey, maintain the, the dietary uh, laws of Judaism. So what, John is, or excuse me, what Mark's trying to get us to see is John's that guy. He was in the wilderness. He had been in the wilderness. His ministry's in the wilderness, and he's preparing the way for Jesus. And then a more subtle uh, scripture, uh, it's an allusion, um, A-L, not I-L. It's an allusion to Elijah. Remember, Elijah's one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. He didn't die. He was taken up to heaven, whatever that means. And so the idea was before the Messiah came, Elijah would come back. And Elijah's described in 2 Kings chapter 1 as wearing... Um, a robe of, of animal hair with a leather belt. And that's why we're told what John was wearing. He's wearing clothes that are similar to Elijah's. That will come back again uh, later on in Mark when Jesus talks about John as that second Elijah. So what, again, Mark is trying to communicate, the, the, the messenger is on the scene. It's John the Baptist. The, the, the one who would prepare the way, he's on the scene. It's John the Baptist. How did John the Baptist prepare the way for the Messiah, for Jesus. He did two things. He called people to repent, and then he announced the Messiah's coming soon. He did both of those things. He called people to repent. To repent is to, literally, it means to change your mind, but in the New Testament, there's always a corresponding change in behavior. It's not just mental activity. To repent, it is to change your mind, but again, always with a corresponding change in behavior. So if you're walking in a direction to repent, it's not just to say, I should probably walk in a different direction. It's actually to stop, 
to turn around and to walk in a new direction. That whole action is what it means to repent. To change your mind, move from disagreeing with God to agreeing with God, and then a corresponding change of behavior. And so John was calling the Jewish people to say, y'all need to do that. You need to repent in order to get ready for the Messiah to come. And as a sign of repentance, you need to be baptized. That's new. Jews weren't baptized. If you were a Gentile and you wanted to become a Jew, you would dip yourself in water. But Jews were not baptized, and they certainly weren't baptized by another person. This, that's a new ritual. That's a new rite. And it's, it's, again, an outward sign of this inward commitment to walking in a new direction. And John is saying, y'all need to do that. And he drew a, a large crowd to what, to me, appears to be a pretty stern message. I think it shows how hungry people were for the Messiah at this time. And then he follows this call to repentance up by saying, I'm not the guy. There's one who's coming after me. I'm not worthy to tie his sandals. I baptize you with water. That is, this is an external sign or an external symbol. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's an internal, uh, I'm going to say real, not that baptism isn't real, but this, this is a transforming work in your heart. And there's several Old Testament prophecies about the giving of the Holy Spirit. And John's saying, that's what this guy's going to do. What I'm doing is external. What he's doing is, is internal. The Holy Spirit's going to be given to you, and the law is, not, is no longer just going to be this, this, uh, this list of rules that you have to try to follow in your own strength. The law is going to be written on your heart. The Holy Spirit's going to move you, enable you, empower you to keep the law. It's a whole new day for us as God's people. And again, people flock to John to hear that message. We, we see through John's ministry that the Messiah is coming. So again, right here at the beginning... The good news, the beginning of the good news of Jesus the Messiah. And so we have, here's the one preparing the way for the Messiah, the Son of God. So here's a little bit on Jesus as the Son of God. Again, these are just hints of what's to come in the rest of the book. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you're my son, whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. At once the Spirit sent Jesus out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild angels, excuse me, the wild animals and angels attended him. Not wild angels, wild animals and angels attended him. So we don't get any detail. If you want detail on Jesus' baptism or his temptation, you need to read Matthew and Luke. Mar didn't give us anything. So how does that contribute to our understanding of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God? Again, there's an explicit and there's an implicit. Explicitly, at Jesus' baptism, the Father says, this is my Son. You can't get any more clear than that. You have the Father speaking, this is my Son, whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. That's why, that's why Mark includes the baptism in his story. He's saying, yes, this is God's Son. He has a special relationship with the Father, and that was declared at his baptism for us a takeaway from that. Jesus hasn't preached his first sermon. He hasn't taught his first parable. He hasn't healed his first sick person. He hasn't delivered the, the first person oppressed by a demon. He hadn't done anything. And we see his, this identity statement spoken over him. My son, whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. We focus a lot here on obedience, on faithfulness, on doing the good works that God's created in advance for us to do. And we'll continue to do that. It's important to remember, though, Identity always precedes activity. Who we are in Jesus always comes before what we do for him. And Jesus is the model for us in that. Again, before he does his first thing in ministry, he's, he, his identity is declared, my son 
whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. And I hope that's encouraging uh, to you. And then Jesus moves immediately into the wilderness, which seems like a weird thing to do. Why would you do that? Why would the Holy Spirit, and that's what it says, sent him. That's actually a really strong word. Why would the Spirit send Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan for 40 days? That doesn't make a ton of sense to us. He's just had this, maybe we call it a mountaintop experience filled with the Holy Spirit, this word of affirmation spoken by the Father, and then immediately, that's what the Bible says, immediately he's sent by the Spirit. Your Bible may say driven even. It's a strong word by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. What is going on there? Uh, I think there's an implicit uh, piece there that's identifying Jesus as God's Son. This is something that goes back to Deuteronomy 8. Let me read you a couple of verses. They'll be on the screen behind me. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness. So that's the wilderness or desert, your Bible may say, these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. And then down to verse 5. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. That word tempt can be tricky. So to tempt is to lure or entice to sin. That's the work of the devil. That's what he does. He wants us to sin. He's trying to get Jesus to sin. That same word can also be translated test, and it often is in the Bible, Testing is the work of the Father. To test is to examine an object, or in our case, to examine a person to determine the quality of the, the, of the, of the faith, the quality of the love, the quality of the trust. It's to, it's to see what's actually going on in here. We don't know unless there's a test. We don't really know. And there's a, there's a history in the Old Testament of God testing his people. Most famously, he tests Abraham. When he says, sacrifice Isaac, this son that you prayed for, that you waited for, that you believed for, that's now been given to you, this child of promise, I want you to take him up on the mountain and kill him. And the Bible explicitly says, it's in Genesis 22, God tested Abraham. He wanted to know, what's Abraham going to do? It's one thing to trust God to provide a son for you when you don't have one. There's a sense in which you're not out anything. The worst thing that happens is you continue to not have a son. It hurts emotionally, but there's not a ton of risk in trusting God to give you a son when you don't have one. Does that make sense? There's a lot of risk in trusting God to, when he says, sacrifice your son, and he's the only one you have. That's a whole different level of trusting the Lord. And we read again in Genesis 22, God tested Abraham. We see in Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy is at the end of the 40 years in the wilderness. It's Moses' final words to the people, the nation, before they enter into the promised land, right before Moses is going to die. It's his, his closing statement to them. And he's summarizing a lot of what's happened in the previous 40 years. And he says, God tested y'all. That's what he was doing in the wilderness. He was testing us as a people. He wanted to know what was in us. Remember the very beginning of those 40 years, they blew it. They sent spies into the land. Ten came back and said, no way, they're big. They're giants, they're gonna kill us. Two guys said, no, we can do this. And God, he, he punishes Israel. He says, for 40 years, you guys are gonna wander in the wilderness, wander in the desert because you didn't trust me. And so he spends those 40 years not done with them, but forming them and shaping them. 
He says explicitly, one of the reasons I chose to to feed you through manna was to test you. That's Exodus 16. Every day you had to trust that there'd be food on the ground when you woke up. That doesn't happen. Every day you got to trust me there's going to be food on the ground. If you gather too much, it's going to rot. You've got to trust me every day. He's testing them to see what's in their heart. In Judges, we read he tests Israel. He leaves some some foreign nations in the land to test them to see, are you going to stay true to me or are you going to start worshiping their gods? He wants to know what's in them. So again, there's there's history there. God tests his people. It's a form of discipline. And discipline is an expression of love from a father to a son. Why is Jesus led into the wilderness, sent into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit? Because he is, a, he is the son of the father. The father loves him. Yes, there's a peace in which Jesus absolutely experiences what we do. That's Hebrews 5. We don't have a high priest that can't empathize or sympathize with us in our weakness. We have one who's tempted like us in every way, yet without sin. So part of it is he is like us. He is fully God. He's also fully human. He's experienced life as a, as a man. He knows what it is to be tempted. I think even maybe four, more fundamentally than that, we're seeing him as the son, the son of God, who God is testing him. He wants to know what, what's in you. I'm, I, I love you. I'm pleased with you. Now let's see what's in you. And I don't know how that fits and kind of computes for you theologically. We'll try to unpack that a little bit more in a second. But I think that's probably what's going on there. I think that's why Mark doesn't give us any details about the nature of the temptation. I think it's just the fact that Jesus was tempted that Mark, that's all he's concerned about. Not necessarily what, how Satan tempted Jesus, just that he was sent into the wilderness. And again, that word tempt is the word test. The father is testing Jesus even as Satan as tempting him. You've got these wild animals. It's a hostile environment, but you also have these angels who are serving Jesus. He's not there on his own. And so there's this, again, this testing, the father wanting to examine him. Let's see what's in you, just like he examined Abraham, just like he examined his people, Israel. For us, as we close this morning, I want you thinking about that idea of wilderness. There's lots of things that we could pull from these few verses, and you may pull something else, which is fine. I was thinking about the idea of wilderness. It's mentioned four times in these 13 verses, it's the setting for everything, setting for John the Baptist's ministry, setting for Jesus' baptism, setting for the temptations or the testing of Jesus. We use that word wilderness sometimes to describe our own experience with the Lord. There's a picture behind me of, of what the wilderness is in Jesus' world. So that's a picture of the Jordan River, and, and it is in the wilderness. Your Bible may translate the word wilderness desert, but when we hear desert, we tend to think sand and sand dunes, not really what's not really the picture. It is desolate for sure. Uh, some rain, not a lot. It's not a land that can be farmed. And so there's not a lot of people that live there. So it's, again, it's, it's arid. It's, it's largely uninhabited. It's kind of on the periphery around some of the cities and towns. But it's also a place in the Bible that, that's significant. It's significant in the life of Jesus. And I think the wilderness can be significant for us as well. And I want to look at it in two ways. So there's a, there's a positive sense to, around wilderness, and then there's a more difficult. I'm not going to say negative, but there's a more difficult connotation. On the positive, the wilderness is a place that Jesus actually chooses to go. In Mark 135, he withdraws to a lonely place. That's the word wilderness to pray. In 145, he withdraws to a solitary place. That's the word wilderness. And people actually come to him 
to be ministered to by him. In Mark 6, the disciples are tired. He sent them on the first ever short-term mission trip, and they've come back, and he says, y'all are tired. Let's go, to a, let's go to a lonely place, the wilderness. That's the word. So that you can eat and so that you can rest and so that you can be with me. People find him and they go to him out there in that solitary place and he teaches them and he heals them and then he feeds them miraculously. Uh, 5,000 men with some, uh, a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. So one of the, the streams of wilderness in the Bible is it's a place to meet God. It's a place to withdraw from some of the kind of the hustle and the bustle of life in order to be alone with God. You can see that in the Old Testament as well. The Israelites were 40 years in the desert. So that's where they got the Ten Commandments. It was in the wilderness. That's where God formed them as a people. It was in the wilderness. It's not always negative. When we think about wilderness in the most literal sense, I think it can be a positive for us, a place to withdraw to meet with the Lord. So here's my challenge. This is a big one. I want you, between now and Christmas, so you got 10 and a half months, I want you to withdraw for at least four hours straight. I want you to go to the wilderness. If you can do more, that'd be great. If you can do a whole day or even an overnight, that'd be wonderful. I want you to make a point between now, so you can schedule it, between now and Christmas, at least four hours, one chunk, where you pull away to meet with the Lord. You, you have a mountain house, you can go there. You've got a lake house, you can go there. You can go to Red Top Mountain. You can go to Kennesaw Mountain. You can go to the beach if that's your, you can't, like Memorial Day doesn't work. It's got to be a time when you, you're withdrawing to be with him. So you're thinking off season. That's what you're doing. That's why I'm giving you time. You got to plan it. But I want you to try it. I do think it'll have a profound impact on you. It has for me. It's something I try to do at least twice a year. I try to pull away. For me, I do several days. You don't have to fast, but you can. You don't have to have an agenda, but you can. I usually have one or two questions in my mind that I'm asking the Lord, but you don't have to have any. For me, I need a Bible, I need a journal, I need worship music, and I need to be able to walk. That's it. Those are my, th those, that's it for me. And you may have some different things that are helpful for you in terms of connecting with the Lord. I'm not, it, it, I'm not trying to see visions and dream dreams. I'm just trying to pull away from responsibilities and pace of life and say, all right, in the quiet, in this wilderness, again, think topographically, geographically, in this place where there's fewer distractions, in this place where there's less noise, in this place where I have fewer responsibilities, I'm going to give you an extended chunk of time. In Luke, we read that it was Jesus's regular practice to withdraw to the wilderness, to solitary places, to pray. Of course we pray in the, the ebb and flow of our life. Of course we pray in our bedroom or in our living room. Of course we do that. But there's something about the intentional withdrawing that can be really good for us. And I want to challenge you to do it. It's worth taking a half day off of work. Most of you don't use your, all your vacation anyway. Take a half day. It's worth... A, out here, out, skip church on a Sunday and do it. You have permission. Go. <laughs> Take it. It's worth it. That's how much I think it can be. Some of you are going to hate it. If you're like all the time and you got, it's going to be hard for you to slow down. But it'll be really good. And again, you don't have to have an agenda. You don't have to come back with 74 pages of your journal. Look at all the things God said to me. You don't have to do that. You're just pulling away 
to be with him. Let me know when you're doing it. Send me an email, david at stonebridgemarietta.org. If you need, I'll, I'll pray for you while you're gone, and I would love to, if there's any way I, anything I can do to help encourage you in the time. But I want you to do it. Some of you have little kids. You're thinking there's no way. Make, make, you can make it happen. You got till December. Uh, you can. You, you, you take a, a Saturday and then let your spouse take the other Saturday. You can handle the kids for four hours. I, I, I do. I'm not saying this flippantly. I really do believe it can be a powerful thing for us as a people in the culture where we live. For us, There's not a lot of wilderness and for us to intentionally pull away, for again, that kind of, I'm thinking if you can just do 8 to 12, 7 to 11 in the morning, something like that, and see what happens. I think it could be profound. The way we normally use wilderness, it's more metaphorical. It's spiritual. Again, you're thinking about that picture, and that picture sometimes describes the state of our heart, our relationship with the Lord. It feels desolate. It feels dry. We use those kinds of words. I'm in a dry time, a desert time, a wilderness season with the Lord. Our prayers feel like they're bouncing off the ceiling. We're reading the Bible, and it's just kind of mumbo-jumbo. It's not penetrating our heart. We're just singing songs. We're not really worshiping. We don't even like the songs that are being sung. We're kind of irritable with the Lord. Or maybe you're not. You just feel distant from him. You're not really sensing his presence. And we say that's a wilderness time, a desert time, a dry time. And again, looking at that picture, yeah, that's, that's about right. It's an apt description for how we feel. And I just want to encourage you slash inform you that's a regular part of the Christian life. I'm 47 today. I became a Christian when I was 12. A regular part of the last 35 years of my life have been wilderness seasons. Not for years. For some people, they do last that long. Not for me, but certainly for months. And it's not punishment. Now, we can wind up distant from God because we're making sinful choices. That is not what I'm talking about. If you're distant from God because of rebellion and sin, then you need to repent, and God will draw you back in. But just like the Holy Spirit sent Jesus into the wilderness, he sends us. And just like he called Jesus back out, he'll call you back out. There's not a whole lot you can do about it. He sends you out, and he'll call you back when he's done with you. What's helpful for us is recognizing what's going on during that time. Again, it's not punishment. It's not because God is disappointed with you. It's not because you did something wrong. It's not because God has forgotten about you. It's not because he's moved on to somebody else. It's a, it's a, it's a natural part of our maturing in the Lord. When you're in one of these seasons, and I would imagine it's church room this size, there's Probably a couple of dozen people who, if you were honest right now, you'd say, that's me. I'm feeling distant. I'm feeling somewhat disconnected. I'm not necessarily uh, sensing the Lord's presence in prayer or worship or reading the Bible. I'm I'm still doing those things. I mean, you're here. I'm still doing those things. There's just not a lot of life in it for me. Maybe you'd say, it's just kind of a, I'm just kind of blah right now spiritually. And again, that's a, that's a normal thing for us. Those seasons will come episodically throughout your life. What is God doing if the Holy Spirit's the one who sent you into the wilderness? He wants, the Father wants to test you. And again, that's not mean. That's not anger. It's not even a thing, well, I gotta perform. How do I prepare? It's, it's, it's not an academic exercise for him. He's wanting to form us and shape us. He wants to see what's in you. Are you gonna still follow me? when I don't make a ton of sense? Are you gonna still trust me when you don't necessarily sense my presence? Are you gonna still obey 
when there's not a lot of benefit to obeying. You're not seeing any fruit. There's no payoff. Are you going to stick with me? He wants to know. He wants to mature us and grow us and form us. Now, absolutely, the enemy wants to take advantage of that time. He will tempt you just like he did Jesus. And the way he's going to tempt you is going to be very unique to you. It's important to know yourself. Where are the places where you're vulnerable? The enemy's never going to tempt me to turn rocks into bread. That's not something I think I can do. But he'll tempt me in some other ways to take matters into my own hands. How is he going to tempt you? Again, that's a matter of knowing yourself, recognizing when we're distant from God. We, when we feel distant from God, we are vulnerable. So you want to be on the guard for that. But I think uh, the reason the Lord leads us in those times, again, it's not to create an environment where we can fall into temptation. It's in order to test us. And you may be saying, well, he knows everything. So why does he got to test me? Well, one reason is because you don't know everything. And he wants us to see what's in us. And that's the way we know. It's when we're tested. It's when we're tested, when there's actually something at stake. Abraham didn't know until he took Isaac up a mountain and strapped him to an altar. He didn't know. He didn't know what he would do if God said, let me have him. And most of us, we're the same way. We, we may think we know what we would do, but we don't actually know what we would do until we're put to the test. God wants us to see what's in us. Again, not academically, but to form us and shape us. And a lot of the things that God knows, God knows because he stands outside of time and he can see them. He knows what I'm going to wear tomorrow, not because he's going to say wear this, but because he can already see tomorrow and he knows what I'm going to put on. So some of what God knows, he knows just because he saw this is how you're going to react in this situation. Your reaction is what he knows. Your response is what he knows. So again, don't think that God's making you jump through hoops or that he's being a cruel, it's, again, this, he's being cruel. He's playing with you, toying with you. Why are you putting me through this? Not at all. And you're in great company. Jesus was tested. Jesus tested the disciples at times. That word is used. He tested the disciples around feeding 5,000 people. I want you to, again, recognize this is going to be a feature of your Christian life. Again, I'm not, some, for some people, that those times do last for, for years. For most, it's, it's weeks and months. The Holy Spirit will lead you in, and he's also going to lead you out when he's done. And when you're in those times, the only thing you can do is keep walking. That's it. You just keep walking. You continue to show up. You pray even though you feel like it doesn't make a difference. You read even though you're like in one ear and out the other. You worship, even though you don't feel anything on the inside. You continue to engage without any of the benefits, the perks. C.S. Lewis, great, one of my favorite quotes in the screw tape letters. It'll be on the screen behind me. Let me find it here so I don't butcher it. Don't be deceived, Wormwood, that's a devil. Our cause, that's the cause of Satan, is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemies, that's God's, to do God's will looks round upon a universe from which every trace of God seems to have vanished as why he's been forsaken. And still obeys. We want to pray for you today if you feel like that. We can't pray you out of the wilderness. God in his sovereignty will call you out when he's done. But we can pray for you in it. And so if right now you would say, feel that way. 
Maybe forsaken is a bit too strong of a word, but I certainly feel overlooked. I feel like I'm doing my part. I'm not sensing a whole lot of support from the Lord. I'm, not, I'm, I'm praying. I, I'm not really hearing anything back. I'm reading. It's not really penetrating my heart. I'm worshiping because I'm supposed to, not necessarily out of anything, any sense of passion or zeal within me. We want to pray that God would, he would meet you in that, that he would form you and shape you. We're going to pray. This isn't the right phrase, but it's the one in my mind. We're going to pray you pass the test, not in terms of performance, but that your faith would show itself to be more precious than gold. Let's pray. Bo's going to come back. Ministry teams, you come up. If that's you, I want you to go ahead and come forward. Don't wait for me to finish. You go ahead and come forward and let these guys start praying for you. And again, nobody, we can't get you out of it, so don't, don't hear that. Nobody's going to try to fix anything. We're just going to pray for you in the middle of it. We've all been there, and we're all going to be there again. So you go ahead and start making your way forward if you're in a wilderness time. God, we're thankful that you treat us like children, not like servants. Parents discipline their children. And part of that is you send us into the desert, into the wilderness at times to show us what's in us. And so you can see what's in us. And I think you're not an angry coach with a clipboard redlining us when we don't make it. I think you're an overjoyed parent who cheers. Even when we stumble, if we're trying our best. So God, I pray for those who in this room, those who are joining us online, who would say right now, I'm in the wilderness. God, would you Speak, would you move? We pray in, in your sovereignty at just the right time that this season would break, that they would experience you in deep and profound ways, that they'd be able to look back during that time of testing and say, look what God did. Look what he did. Look what he showed me. Look what he revealed. I wouldn't have known except for that, that it would be that precious. God, I pray for each one of us looking forward to the rest of the year that you would show us what is it to withdraw to the wilderness to meet with you. For some of us, that's the scariest thing in the world to pull away and to think of four hours with you with no distractions and no disruptions. God, would you begin to stir it within us a desire to do that and show us logistically how to make it happen. And I pray for everyone in this room, students and adults, that that time would be special and significant. So we open ourselves up to you as we begin this study of Mark. I pray that every one of us would come to know you, Jesus, on a deeper level as the Messiah, the Son of God, and that each of us would follow you more closely. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week.